Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Human Reaction. We've got a very special guest with us today. Uh, his name is Mike Termott, and he is a candidate for the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on Human Reaction today. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you. Absolutely. Great to have you. So why don't we get started uh, with who you are and why it is that you're running for president? Uh, well, I can uh, describe why I'm running for president. I'm not sure your audience wants to blow off two minutes and learning anything about me in particular. Uh, that could be the worst two minutes of, of their day and it'll only go uphill from there. That's the good news. Uh, <laughs> look, I'm running for president because I think uh, a couple of things are true simultaneously. One is that we have a huge opportunity in 2024, which is to say the Libertarian Party and the Libertarianism more generally. Uh, indeed, I think it's not only uh, an opportunity, I think it's an obligation. And in that sense, there's something else that is uh, really true uh, that drives me as well. And that is that I'm afraid that we run the risk of missing our opportunity and not fulfilling our obligation, as I believe that we have failed in the past uh, as well, if we don't do a certain uh, couple of things right. One is to run on a a platform that is very much uh, policy forward, full of the most transformational ideas, and to back that up with a very professional campaign, a lot of credibility, a lot of willingness to talk about details when necessary, and to align ourselves with the values of everyday Americans, uh, not just libertarians, uh, most especially. I do believe that most Americans have a libertarian streak, and this is one of the reasons why we have such a huge opportunity. And the reason it's such an obligation is because I think that our government is going in the bad in, in, a, in a bad direction. I think our government is going off the rails. And I think that the amount of time left to to right this ship is getting smaller and smaller. And at some point, there'll be a point of no return. Indeed, it's possible that we've passed that point already. I don't know for sure. Uh, so I, I worry about that. And I feel like... Uh, it's time for libertarianism and libertarian party to play a real role in American politics. And so what are some of those key issues that you feel like are going to unite everyday Americans who might be ours, might be D's around libertarianism around your campaign? A couple of different things. One is that I think that the American public is ready for an anti-war message in a much more robust fashion than they've been ready for uh, in the past certainly in the in the recent past, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have left debate over war uh, behind. You can't find, well, you haven't been able to find a Republican anti-war candidate for a long, long, long time. And uh, I, I really think RFK too, notwithstanding, I think it's been a long time since, I would argue since the 70s when you had really an anti-war uh, streak among politicians in the Democratic Party. And I think that Americans are ready for that in a, in a much bigger way than, than recently. We can talk about some of the reasons why. But I also think that it's likely, uh, if, if past is prologue, which it usually is, but not always, I think it's likely that economic issues will rise to the top next year. I think that we're the only party that can make a, a decent case that we know what's what with regard to inflation, uh, controlling government spending, bringing down government debt. These are huge threats to the American way of life, to our standard of living. And I think uh, Americans are, are frustrated by these issues. 
And I think there's a growing sense in America that many of these problems are the result of bad public policy. Inflation doesn't just fall off of a tree, right? We've got very, very fundamental problems with the way that we run monetary policy in the United States. And there are things that we can do to fix them. It's not easy, uh, but there are specific things that we can do and spending uh, as well. And would you say, I mean, I think a lot of Americans are would echo those concerns because we, we see the economy shifting and we see perhaps a recession looming or perhaps we're already in one. Uh, what would you say to those everyday Americans? Where are we now? What should we be expecting, uh, if anything, in the coming year or years? Economy-wise or policy-wise? Well, economy-wise, but then also, yeah, what would your prescriptions be in order to uh, address that? <laughs> economy-wise, uh, I still believe a recession is coming. Uh, no guarantees, right? Uh, because we are in a period of economic slowdown right now. So it is uh, conceivable that we'll dodge uh, a recession, but only if we go through a real prolonged period of uh, economic slowdown, like like what we've been in the past couple of quarters. In other words, there's going to be slowdown one way or another, whether it's dramatic and concentrated into a couple of quarters or whether it's mild and lasts uh, possibly a couple of years uh, is is more difficult to predict than the fact that we are going to be in a, a slump. Uh, I would not be surprised if some inflation comes back. I think that the the root causes of inflation have not been eliminated. So in that sense, uh, once the Federal Reserve decides that the, the economic slump that we're in is their major concern and they ease up on monetary policy, I think that inflation could easily come back and in quite a, a significant uh, fashion. I don't believe that the, the the political will is there to answer your question about uh, politics. I don't think the political will is there to do much about it in either, in either case, either in terms of spending or inflation. Uh, if, if Democrats remain in power, uh, I think that some of the root causes of our inflation and spending will remain in place. Uh, which is to say bad policy toward energy, bad industrial policy, even more generally, too much spending. Uh, I don't believe that there's political will in the Republican Party to do anything about that either. If a uh, Republican were to come into power in the White House, we might have better industrial policy, uh, better energy policy. That matters. But uh, I don't see either party having the will to slow down in spending in general. Uh, on the military more particularly. And I do worry as well, both in an economic context and, and more broadly, uh, that a conflict with China is uh, in, in not such distant future, whether Republican or a Democrat comes to power. And that would be a big problem economically as well, of course, in, in terms of uh, just how we project power around the world and how we relate to the rest of the world. So when you think about the uh, potential conflict with China, what is your solution to the existing kind of set of choices that we have? And I'll kind of describe what I see the set of choices. Then you tell me if I'm wrong and, and how you would navigate that. On one side of it, you have the status quo negotiated by Nixon, basically saying that we're going to be ambiguous about whether or not we defend China in as long as China continues to only integrate Taiwan by peaceful means, right? So China, they avoid, China's policy is that Taiwan's part of China. 
but we're going to say, well, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> right. And what the kind of hawks like Josh Hawley and a lot of the Republicans that are currently running for uh, president are saying is, well, that's a problem because China has violated their end of the deal. They they're they're going to take Taiwan if we don't do something. It's right. kind of like they're, they're anticipating too. something. Yeah, right. They're kind of reading China's mind and saying they're going to do something violent. Therefore, we should make we should have now strategic clarity, not ambiguity. And we should, you know, basically porcupine China and put a bunch of uh, guns there. So um, how would you do, how would you describe and how would you solve that problem? Uh, I agree with the way you set it up. I think those are both uh, stupid choices. Um, uh, and I think uh, just to take one step back or one step up, we we got into this position in no small part because of our own stupid choices. I believe that there is no such thing as a relationship, whether whether with your spouse or with another nation, that is made better off by ambiguity. Uh, I think that we are better off as a nation when we project a foreign policy that is clear, clear about what our interests are, clear about what we'll do. Equally importantly, sometimes more importantly, very clear about what our interests aren't and what we won't do. The reason that we have such strong ties to Taiwan economically are because we have accidentally, some might argue intentionally, sent this signal that if you invest in Taiwan, we'll be there to back you up come hell or high water. Mm. That was a bad idea. If, if you are considering making an investment in Taiwan, good for you. But if the reason you're making that investment in Taiwan, if you're building a new uh, manufacturing facility, and of course, what we're particularly talking about that's so critical to the United States is uh, high tech in particular, more particular than that in chips and, and much more particular than that, uh, high end chips that we're going to need for AI, right? If you're thinking about developing a manufacturing facility in Taiwan because the United States is going to be there militarily to back you up, uh, we need to correct that. We need to send the signal that that's a bad idea. If you want to invest in a place because the American military is going to back you up, let me suggest, uh, you know, Albuquerque. Uh, <laughs> let me suggest Philadelphia. Those are places right. that we will back up come hell or high water. Taiwan should not be one of them. So the first thing that I think that we need to do is send the signal that that is not our policy. Our policy is not to treat Taiwan as though it were, uh, you know, Idaho to pick someone that is uh, someplace that is closer to to you guys. Right. Uh, obviously, we would back up Montana no matter what. It is the crown jewel and the, the states that make up uh, the American nation and continent. We well, and we have all the treating... nukes, so you got to protect the nukes, right? <laughs> well, that's a good point. You don't want to conflict with uh, Montana. Uh, I don't believe you have all the nukes, by the way. Yeah, you just have quite a, few. a huge undisclosed proportion. <laughs> right. So, An ambiguously uh, large uh, number. Yeah. So, so a lot of, yeah, a lot of your, I, I think a lot of the Republicans are going to retort that if we, if we, if we send the signal that it's not ambiguous, so we're not going to give them the risk that we might defend China, that that will encourage China to invade Taiwan and to control Taiwan because they have a nationalist incentive to do so. Right. I understand that. Uh, meaning that we need to move post haste. Well, we I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure if it necessarily means we need to 
arm Taiwan. I think that's what the Hawks are saying, and I'm not sure that they're well, right. Well, that's right, but I, yeah. I believe to the extent to which that may be true, mm-hmm. and I think it is true that China is fixing to move against Taiwan. That doesn't necessarily mean that they will, right? Pre- preparing to do so and executing on that plan are two very different things. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, The Chinese have an interest in intimidating us. Uh, The Chinese have uh, an an interest in holding that out as a possibility. Whether they decide at the end of the day, it's in their net interest, net of the cost incurred by a war. If it's in their net interest to invade, remains to be demonstrated, not only because of things rattling around in their own leadership's heads, but because of the things that are going to play out over the next few years. But to your point, I think that we need to quickly send the message. I do worry that if we don't anytime Mm -hmm. soon, uh, investment will continue in Taiwan and the Republicans and Democrats will view this as a, well, they may not view it as a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it'll become one. Right. Enough time will have elapsed that we feel like that we have to back up Taiwan because it has become the 51st state. If I were if I were Puerto Rican, I'd be offended by that. Mm. Uh, But this idea that uh, we have to back up Taiwan comes from the fact that all this investment has been made because we've been sending the signal that we would. So I believe that we need to send that signal that that is not the case quickly uh, and try to reduce tensions uh, there and of course build up our ability to access chips in a different way domestically yes absolutely uh, I don't think that we need to subsidize the development of uh, a chip manufacturing industry in the United States I think that, that is going to be moving apace uh, anyway and I think that it'll accelerate once we tell the world that we're not going to treat Taiwan like one of the states I also believe it is uh, okay to have a a diversified uh, panel of options from which to choose around the world. This would not be such a problem if, for example, our choices uh, including Europe, included Europe or included uh, Latin America, for example. There are problems all over the world, uh, but... To be honest, there are problems with doing in the United States, too. You'd still be subject to nationalization by some silly Democratic president. So there's problems all over the place. But we need a diversified uh, panel of options, uh, I believe. If you could manufacture in the United States in the first place because the EPA won't let you. Right. Well, that's right. And I mean, just like uh, we, you know, as libertarians, well, and as economists, we believe that we need a, a full array of options energy-wise, right? That doesn't mean we need to subsidize nuclear. It means we need to get the hell out of the way. Mm-hmm. The reason that we haven't haven't had enough technological development in nuclear in this country is because we long ago sent the signal that we were going to be a regulatory pain in the ass. This is why most of the development, technologically speaking, most of the development in nuclear is, is, has occurred offshore. So now if you're going to develop a nuclear power plant in the United States, the first thing you got to do is bring over, you know, very smart and experienced people from abroad. I don't have a problem with that per se, but it does, you know, raise the the issue of how silly we look having formerly been the leader in this area and uh, no longer. 
If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. Mike, I'd, I'd like to shift gears to another issue that I think has been a really hot one that, that people want to have answers to. Uh, it's been very contentious both you know, within the Libertarian Party and also more broadly, uh, and that is immigration. And you, know, you were at the border uh, not too long ago. What, what is your immigration policy? What is your vision for that? You know, Because we've got the open borders folks, we've got closed borders folks. Where do you fall on that issue? I believe that we need a much more pro-immigration policy and a much more pro-immigrant policy. Uh, you're right. I was down in Arizona at the border late last year. Uh, one of the things that I came away uh, really shaken by was the extent to which we have a humanitarian crisis in the context of a black market that we have created for human trafficking. It's not just a big problem. It's a huge problem. The majority of people that come into the United States come in illegally, and the majority of the people that come in illegally are, uh, in one sense or another, trafficked. Many of these people wind up in indentured servitude. And worse, we don't need to go into great detail, but it is absolutely heartbreaking. And this is the result of bad government, American bad government policy. And this is the case whenever you create a black market in anything. We see it in the war on drugs generally. Uh, you see it, in, well, in, in all kinds of places. Whenever you choose to make something illegal that the culture is not ready to give up, that you cannot shut down, you create a black market, and black markets are dangerous. Black markets kill people. And this is why people are dying at the border and, and, and being handed over into lives of uh, indentured uh, servitude. So in answer to your question, we need to do a couple of things right at the same time. One is that this will sound weird for a libertarian because I am no fan of surging government resources anywhere, but I would reallocate resources from the, from the Defense Department to processing people in more rapidly in a legal fashion. This idea that we can't vet people through, but for weeks or months is, is frankly stupid. This is what I'm about to say, I recognize is a bit of an apple versus an orange, but not completely. When I worked for the White House, we could vet someone in to the, to the complex, not just in the United States, into the White House complex in 90 minutes from a cold start, like unannounced. So don't tell me that we can't bring technological solutions to bear to accelerate the rate that we bring people in. That has to be done in a fashion that is so robust that it diminishes the incentive to come through illegally. I would also dedicate resources to preventing people coming in illegally, 
not because I want fewer immigrants. I want more immigrants, but I want them to come through legally because it's safer. Coming in illegally is a danger. It's a hazard that we have created. I think that we have an obligation to do something about that. You, you can't go years, decades, sending the signal that the only way you can get through is illegally, create a black market, and then expect that just because you change course with the, the legal portal, that all of a sudden people aren't going to be uh, risking their lives coming through illegally. We have an obligation to make this a safer process. And by the way, uh, this is a bad look to the rest of the world. There are people literally dying, trying to come to the United States. We not only look like idiots, we look like jerks. And and I think that that is an accurate reflection of our, of our policy. I think it's really uh, horrible. Immigration is good for the United States. It is not true that this nation is overcrowded. It is not true that immigrants cost the government, the, the accounting system of government. Uh, immigrants use less public resources than people that are born in the United States. They use less public resources than what they contribute in tax dollars. There is just no reason uh, to shut down immigration the way we have. It's good for us culturally. It is one of the things that defines what America is, what America is all about. And so in that sense, if, if my own view is that if you don't like immigration, you don't like America. So uh, and another one is is the process to become citizens and a lot of the people who are kind of stuck in the middle of that. So would you have any comments on DACA and the actual citizenship process and streamlining that? Or is that? Yeah, part of I do think well? you have to create what what uh, people call a path to citizenship. Right. I don't like the idea of leapfrogging the system to, you know, give those people some sort of added advantage over people that are coming through currently. But that's got to absolutely be expedited. Uh, there's there's just no there's no economic reason. There's no logical reason. There's no ethical reason. There's no good policy reason why you would delay giving people a right to uh, citizenship. As an example, this idea that we'll let you in, but you can't work. Wow. Uh, talk about stupid. <laughs> terrible. Um, it makes no sense. Yeah, right. It's a terrible. Uh, right. I would rather a policy that says you have to work. Yeah. I would rather call people in two weeks and say, are you working? You have a job? What, what are you doing? Uh, get off your tuchus and get a job. Uh, what is there American about coming over here and not working? Well, it seems like the whole reason anybody w would want to come here was be for the economic, uh, economic opportunity, right? Although we do have of the course. welfare state and that is a factor, you know, with regard to folks that maybe uh, would be inclined to take advantage of that. How does the welfare state and your immigration policy uh, interact? Well, you can't let people have access to the welfare state who are just coming in. Most of the programs immigrants are not eligible for now, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, you do need to be careful of that. You need to tighten that up. Nobody wants to, to create some weird incentive. I don't believe it is true, by the way that a significant number of people come here because of our, our welfare system. I think you're absolutely right that people come here for a combination of uh, economics, number one, and number two, to escape uh, political persecution and it broadly defined, uh, you know, oftentimes that takes the, the form of escaping crime, right? Whether you're escaping crime, political per persecution, 
uh, or an environment where you just can't find work, uh, I don't think should really matter to us. If if you if you're living in Latin America and you don't want to come to the United States, I got to ask why. Like, what are you thinking? Right. Uh, you better have a really unusually good setup where you are to suggest that you wouldn't consider coming to the United States. It's almost like we need to do a focus group. Although I would say that uh, it's not like the U.S. is a terribly great uh, place to come to flee political prosecution at this time. It doesn't appear that way to me anyways. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, our government is going to watch every one of your financial transactions. We're going to watch everything you do uh, in social media. Uh, we're we're going to uh, record everything about all of your uh, personal messaging and then have the right the government is going to impose to itself uh, the authority to check into all of your messaging. So yeah, that's going to suck, but at least you'll, you'll be able to get a job. <laughs> but it's not the Zeta cartel doing the same thing. Right. right? right. I mean, like it, it's, it's not, not as, not as bad. Yeah. Well, and I actually mentioning the cartels. I am curious. So you do have a background as a police officer. Um, and I think that, you know, that's interesting. Maybe a lot of libertarians would, would pause at that, but I'm curious how your view of drug policy uh, interacts with, with the immigration question, because that is a huge factor, illegal drugs coming across the border. How does that uh, play into your vision? Yeah, I think they go hand in hand. Uh, one of the reasons why we have uh, drugs, well, the reason we have drugs coming over the border is because we have a drug prohibition in the United States, which is stupid. We know that prohibitions don't work. We know that prohibitions uh, create black markets and that black markets are dangerous and black markets kill. The reason that we have dozens of thousands of people in this country dying every year from fentanyl is not because is not merely because fentanyl is so dangerous and so powerful, but because we have a black market. And so we don't have, you know, good good labeling. We don't have. Uh, any kind of private sector uh, regulation of it. You don't have any branding, for example. You don't have any trusted providers. This is why it kills people because the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of people who die from fentanyl overdose are not, you know, classical cases of suicide. These are not people that want to die. These are mistakes. These are accidental overdoses. And it's because they don't realize what it is that they're they're taking. This is the result of the of the black market. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that whether you come to libertarianism from the left side or the right side, you end up in the same place, which is to say, if, if I may characterize the two sides in the following way, coming to it from the right side is what I call a recognition that the world works better when you let people make decisions for themselves and coming to libertarianism from the left side is what I refer to in the, in the sense of even if it didn't letting people make decisions for themselves is the right thing to do that nobody has an ethical authority to impose on you a way that you should be living your life. So it turns out that uh, this war on drugs, which is so unethical to look at it from the left side of libertarianism 
also, not surprisingly, leads to a situation where the world is messed up, where it doesn't work very well when the government tries to make decisions for people, in this case, trying to shut something down that they can't shut down and driving these transactions underground. Consequently, we have failed miserably as a society in addressing what is a huge addiction problem uh, and an and a huge now uh, problem of uh, deaths, particularly from uh, fentanyl. Yeah, as a law enforcement officer, you're right. I was a cop for 11 and a half years in in Broward County, Florida, in South Broward. Um, yeah, I saw the result of bad public policy every day. We used to say if, if you had not been an economist, I, I was an economist for two or three decades, depending on your definition of economist, before becoming a, a cop, I used to say all the time, if if you were not an economist before you became a cop, becoming a cop will turn you into an economist hmm. because you see the result of bad public policy every day. Hmm. You see the result of, of black markets. Uh, you see the effects of everything else too, you know, bad welfare policy that breaks up families, uh, bad... Uh, school policy that leads to crappy education, bad housing, bad zoning uh, that leads to the concentration of crime. And then, of course, you have the world's most oppressive criminal justice system laid over the the top of the whole thing, which uh, just creates a, a pipeline into uh, these black markets. Uh, it's it's a it's a real problem, but it does go hand in glove uh, working in law enforcement and seeing the results of bad policy. So I'm curious, would you, as a solution to that, if you were elected president, would you legalize all drugs? And if so, how do we reconcile that with some of the sanctuary cities we see on the West Coast where homelessness and drug use in the streets are rampant? And uh, obviously those communities have not been made better by making you know that activity quote unquote legal, maybe not technically legal, but at least uh, allowed to be carried out in the streets. Yeah, I think there are two different issues. I think we should tease them apart. Uh, yeah, if I, you know, were able to, I would legalize drugs. The president doesn't have that authority. Uh, even at the federal level, uh, it's legislated. Uh, certainly a libertarian administration could lead a national debate in the right direction, uh, lead a national uh, conversation. And I, the way that I predict that that will play out is that there will uh, first, and, and I believe this will play out in, in, in states uh, before it plays out the federal level, once we finally completely uh, decriminalize and then uh, deregulate cannabis, uh, the next step will be drugs that people recognize are, are not addictive. Right. Uh, I believe that those will be decriminalized and then deregulated at the state level and then eventually at the federal level, or at least the federal government will stand down. And the third step, and I cannot predict when this will take place, will be going after the decriminal pursuing decriminalization for harder drugs. I do believe it's necessary because addictive drugs can be so damaging the best way to treat them as the medical problem they are. Driving them underground with a drug prohibition does not help. To your point about the the cities that are, let's, let's be honest, uh, governed by modern 
policies of looking the other way in terms of petty crime, uh, in terms of uh, homelessness. That is, uh, I, I appreciate it's not a completely un, unrelated issue, but it is a mostly unrelated issue. Um, communities, people have a right to come together, form communities, and decide what type of criminal justice system that they want. The challenge, I spent a lot of, as you might imagine, I spent a lot of time talking about criminal justice reform. The challenge is to get your community's values recognizably aligned with how your police department runs or your sheriff's office, right? That's the object. That's the holy grail. That's the object of the game. Right. Telling people that you can camp out on the public sidewalk is not aligning your public policy with the underlying values of your community. It's, it's just, it's just not right. Nor is looking the other way on petty crime. Uh, a failure to prosecute shoplifting does not align with people's values. And as libertarians, we recognize that property values, property rights, well, and property values, that was a Freudian slip, uh, but property <laughs> rights are something that we believe uh, need to be protected. They're uh, a foundation of how our economy works and how a society needs to work uh, ethically. The reason that you hire a police department is not because you need a, a hundred jerks running around being annoying. I recognize that happens sometimes. The reason you hire a police department is to protect people's property rights and individual liberties, not only against the state itself, which is important, uh, but against e each other. That's what uh, fighting crime is all about. If, if you are telling your police force not to keep public thoroughfares clear, not to prosecute uh, petty crime, you're, you're not doing your community any favors and you're not aligning with the underlying values of your communities. So can I summarize that as it's a 10th Amendment issue? Like the president doesn't have a role in telling cities what their criminal justice That's, system should look that like? That is exactly right. right. And it's not to say that the administration can't be more helpful. Hmm. Um, the administration can be more helpful. And, and I think that politics matters. We've seen that. We all wish that politics didn't matter. Politics does matter. If, if you're on the left saying defund the police, or if you're on the right saying back the blue all the time, look, I'm a cop and I don't say anything that stupid, right? But a lot of Republicans do. It, that is not helpful. That is not, reform is hard. Mm -hmm. uh, and reforming police culture, police behavior, holding police accountable, increasing transparency, Imposing market forces so there's more choice uh, among the agencies that you can hire and more competition among officers. Those are ambitious goals, but that's where we need to go. That is hard work. That is not a, you are not helping by saying, oh, back the blue willy nilly. Right. And you're not helping by saying defund the police. Nobody wants to. Nobody thoughtful in this area wants to defund the police. Uh we want to defund bad behavior, but, uh, you know, there is still such a thing as crime in this world and, and communities have to be able to figure out what they want to do about that. And I was, I was hearing when you were kind of saying that there needs to be accountability, uh, do you have thoughts on qualified immunity and repealing it? 
Yeah, I think qualified immunity is a problem. I think it's a, a problem fundamentally. I think it's a problem uh, politically as well. And the reason I say politically, I should say culturally. Qualified immunity doesn't affect as many cases as people think. Interestingly, qualified immunity doesn't affect as many cases as police officers think. Hmm. Police officers think that they have uh, a lot more umbrella coverage from qualified immunity than they actually do. So in that sense, I believe that getting rid of qualified immunity would be a good thing because it would improve police behavior. Uh, But I also believe the communities would feel better off. The whole idea of telling people, uh, even if it's only in certain circumstances, that you can't bring action in a court against any area of government, right? Police officers, anybody else. I I find that un-American, right? I mean, you could be right, you could be wrong, but the way that this should play out is for a court to decide, right? If you have been wronged by a public official, police officer, anybody else, you need to be able to seek redress in court. We, We don't tell victimized patients of a doctor, well, Sure, your doctor cut off the wrong foot, but, you know, he didn't mean to. Suck it up, buttercup. You know, that's not uh, how this works. He was following procedure, right? As long as he's following procedure, he's not liable <laughs> right. for what he's doing, right? But which is he, which he is not different from... He did such a nice from, job of it. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, Even though it's the wrong procedure not, or that procedure violates your rights. That's the strange thing about qualified immunity is it, it ends up with a, uh, much like the Nazi prison guard, as long as they were doing the right thing, they're not liable. What, what we decided at you know the Nuremberg trials was that's no excuse. It doesn't right. matter what the procedure was. It doesn't matter what, what matters is that people died because of your behavior and you are responsible for your actions. That's exactly right. And, and we reckon that is an excellent example, although a fairly dark one. Uh, I go there. Sorry. But there are, <laughs> you know, the examples also include honest mistakes. Right. Right. Doctors make mistakes, uh, but we don't require the mistake to rise to the level of criminal behavior in order for you to seek compensation. Just because it is an honest mistake doesn't mean you're still without the wrong foot. By the way, you're apparently going to be without two feet in a moment. Um, in, in speaking of dark examples. Right. Uh, so I apologize for, for the darkness of that example. Uh So, you know, we're not talking about creating a system in which, uh, you know, you made an honest mistake on some, you know, random Tuesday at work and you're going to lose your house. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about imposing a system in which officers are required to carry personal liability insurance. So they're bonded by a private sector insurance company, just like uh, doctors are. In the case of doctors, it's not typically a mandate from the state. It's you know, market force is being brought to bear. Uh, no surgeon is going to run without liability insurance, right? Malpractice insurance. That's the kind of system that we want in policing. So that, uh, you know, if you're if you're just not good at this, if, if you have a history of making mistakes, you're going to be harder to insure, right? You're going to get priced out of the market through increased uh, premiums. That's how we want the system to work. And And by the way, We have not yet touched on what I think is the real big reason why we need to get rid of qualified immunity. The politics are important, the uh, ability of Americans to seek redress in court. But the big reason, I believe, is that bringing a 
an insurance company in as a third party check on the system would do wonders at getting around the police unions that do such an effective job at blocking transparency, blocking accountability, blocking more market forces from being brought to bear. In that sense, I think an outside check on the system would be really terrific because an insurance company is not going to put up with the bullshit that is dished out by uh, police unions, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we still have the First Amendment. No one is suggesting that just because you're a public sector employee, you shouldn't have the right to uh, to unionize. Um, I'm not such a fan of the state that I believe the state should you know, be able to negotiate with its employees and take away their First Amendment right of association. That's not what we're suggesting. But what we are suggesting is that when you have protection for officers in a way that keeps them from requiring insurance, and then you give them these insanely powerful unions that so often are able to politically capture their bosses, you have a really messed up system. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Shifting gears slightly, we talked about mistakes a little bit, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the fires that have just occurred in Maui and the government response to that, and perhaps, you know, was that response that we've seen so far, was that appropriate, or what is the appropriate role of the federal government uh, in the response to what we've seen happen there? Yeah, it, it is true uh, that the federal government is not the, the primary vehicle, nor, nor should it be. Uh, it's not the primary vehicle for delivering aid, for coordinating aid. Uh, I get that. Having said that, we have decided politically, uh, as a libertarian, uh, I might have opinions how we can do things uh, better, but let's, let's set that aside just for a moment. Politically, we have decided that we want a federal government back up to states' efforts. And in, in that sense, we have created a bit of, uh, you know, mutual insurance uh, to, to back up huge disasters in, in states. Typically, disasters are handled and should be handled at the state level uh, to the extent to which states decide that they want to pool resources and use the federal government as a backup for truly major, uh, truly major disasters is potentially okay. I think that the government has dropped the ball in a few cases in the past. And so I would query whether that's really a good idea. But again, let's set that aside just for a moment. The federal government has to do a better job of proactively being able to provide resources in a more timely fashion. Particularly tricky is when it's in a place like Hawaii and it's very difficult to move resources. But we need to be better than we are at bringing the capabilities of the federal government to bear. I th in, in that sense, uh, not only do we have to be more ready to transport, but we have to be more ready to use the National Guard 
and the regular military, for example. We need to do a much better job of being able to mobilize those resources than we obviously have been in the past, and I believe better than, than we were in this particular case. There is also a, a political aspect of this. I'm not a big fan of jumping all over uh, Joe Biden for a lot of things because I think it he, he's just a, a soft target. He's obviously... 20 years past his sell-by date, I'm not even sure he could find Hawaii on a map at this point. So to pile on him seems a little uh, unfair and gross in some sense. But uh, you have got to be more engaged, not merely for the sake of politicking and messaging. And I recognize why those things are important. By the way, they're also important because the world is watching, right? Uh, The way that you treat people in your own country is a foreign policy matter. It it does not help the projection of the American image to be a complete jerk within uh, the 50 states. But having said that, it's also important because this is what sets the tone for the sense of urgency for the federal government. It's what sets the tone uh, for the deployment of military resources and the National Guard. So these things do have real-world implications. Now, it does appear, at, I, I, I hesitate to talk about particular instances and cases until we have all the facts. If there's one thing you learn as a cop, it is that there is always something you don't know. You're lurking around the corner, a set of facts that's going to make you feel real dumb if you go out on a peninsula uh, with some pronouncement too soon. It does look like there were a couple of balls dropped, right? In terms of, uh, you know, we're still learning what happened with the deployment of water resources. We're still learning what happened in terms of uh, sending the, the warning sirens these are open questions, and I, I, I worry that we are going to learn that some some local officials didn't do a, a very good job, and that is a heartbreaking concept. I don't like blaming this all on uh, climate change. I think that that leads to bad policy going forward. It's also not clear that climate change had one iota to do with this. Sometimes, sometimes bad things happen. And looking for scapegoats is not helpful. Absolutely. Uh, I only have one more question for you, and this is sort of a different one than maybe you're you're used to getting. Uh, I know as as libertarians, we tend to focus on r- the really rational side of politics. You know, the economy and immigration and incentives and all these things that that we can really clearly articulate in sort of a left brain sense, but. A lot of the country is motivated by social issues right now. And I think a lot of times libertarians are sort of insulated from dealing with that because, oh, we're over here and it's sort of like live and let live, right? Do you have any uh, any input on the the social conversation in this country? Anything, you know, within the culture war, do you have a vision for how that should go? Or is that is that uh, off limits for you? Yes. No. Yes. No. Uh, <laughs> Both? <laughs> neither uh look uh i don't believe that libertarians should engage in the culture wars for the following reason if we're going to be involved in public policy we need the credibility of not 
uh, engaging in in cultural arguments. You forfeit credibility when you uh, when you campaign on how you feel about the way people live their lives, for example, and then turn around and say, well, I wouldn't impose that in terms of public policy. Really? Because you just spent the last seven minutes railing against the way certain people live their lives. Look, I was raised by a Lutheran and a Calvinist, so I'm not going to be able to hide the ball on how my family feels about the way people should live their lives, right? But that has got to remain irrelevant to how we develop public policy. You don't want to know how my family feels about how you should live. They will tell you, all right? They will tell you. They will make you feel bad. They tell me all the time, right? <laughs> and and bless their hearts. Bless their hearts because, uh, because they mean it. Now, having said that, it is important to send the signal that that does not mean that the culture wars are unimportant. Just because we're not going to codify things in public policy doesn't mean that they're not important. In fact, I might argue they're more important than that. They're too important. Public policy is, as we have all come to articulate, if not internalize, public policy is downstream from culture. Not only is that an observation, but it needs to be an admonishment. It, it has to be downstream from culture. When you make the mistake of believing that you can affect the culture by criminalizing something, by making something illegal, that's where black markets come from. That is messed up. Can't have it. And, and that's where libertarianism needs to, to, to inject itself, draw that line. But... If you're involved in the culture war, good for you. Just don't bring it to public policy. I'm not saying it's unimportant. In fact, the way that we wish this would go is that we want to diminish the relative importance of the state, of the government. Broadly speaking, and in your life in particular. And in that sense, we want to make the culture wars more important by keeping the government out of it. If you disagree with the way society is going, by the way, maybe I do too, right? I got some serious problems with the way that we are going culturally. Then get involved, get off your tuchus and, you know, do your thing. Uh, campaign, you know, go stand on the street corner with a sign. Uh, join an organization. Um, you know, join your church. Uh or complain outside the church. You know, I'm not trying to tell you which side of any right. particular argument you should be on, but get involved, but don't impose it on the rest of us through some weird sense that you're going to use public policy to do so. That that can't happen. So in that sense, we want to be able to send the signal. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party do not align with your values. That is clear. They have left their policy agenda behind, have engaged in the culture wars in a way that that has caused Americans to go at each other's throats, not not having brought us together. And I think that that's because they have tried to engage the culture wars in a way 
that imposes public policy that tells you this is the way that you have to do it. Uh, as a as a weird example, and maybe uh, you know a slightly uh, more difficult example than some others. One of the reasons why I have always believed that the way Roe v. Wade was mandated, the way it was decided, was so wrong, was because it was explicitly political. It was decided under the premise that America would be made better off by not having states decide. That was one of the arguments that was made. Sandra Day O'Connor made this made made this argument that America would be better off if we had a uniform policy, whatever policy that was. That is so un-American, it makes my skin crawl. Mm. However you feel about abortion, we have got to recognize that states are in a better position and are ob- obligated to make rules for their own people, not allow it to the federal level. Now, I would argue that the state doesn't have the authority, right, uh, to impose onerous rules in, in this area. But, you know, we can have that food fight. That has not helped politically, it has not helped socially, and it has not helped culturally to take that debate away from Americans. And this is, uh, this is why it has exploded Right. After two generations of having been suppressed, we finally get to have that debate. But we're having 40 years of argument crammed into 40 weeks. It's no wonder everyone's upset. Hmm. So how would you distinguish between the social issues that government should get involved in versus the ones that shouldn't on the appropriate level? So I totally get what you're saying. The federal government shouldn't have a role in abortion. Uh, but should your and, and a lot of people listen to this who are interested in the full spectrum of political issues. And as a libertarian presidential candidate, you would be the leader of not just the libertarian party, but a leader on what it means to be a libertarian or libertarianism. Right. Uh, so as right. you're putting yourself forward for that, how would you help? How would you recommend people think about when to get involved with a social issue from a political angle? Like, for example, a lot of the argument around transgender stuff has to do with children and public schools. And when right. and, and what should our public schools teach the children and when should it be OK for children to be be around nudity or around, you know, uh, drag queen dances at schools or in public libraries or something like that? And obviously there's a political angle because we have public funding of these things. So how should yeah. libertarians navigate that issue and think about that? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Um, look, the, the, the bottom line is and the most important principle is the parents need to decide. Parents need to be in charge of their kids' education. And there's a couple of that has a couple of implications. One is that we need a more robust school choice program in the United States. This idea of having public schools monopolize the use of public funding, by the way, in 100 years, I don't think we're going to have public funding of primary and secondary education uh, either. I wish it would go away a lot faster than that, but it's going to take a long time. Hmm. But as long as we do have public funding for primary and secondary education and, and I could be wrong, there could be communities that are just wed to this idea and believe that it is inherently a public service. Well, especially rural uh, communities, and, right? You go to rural yeah. Montana, you're not, you're not, that whole idea is just way out the window. Like even school yeah, choices out the window, right? Cause it's a monopoly. Yeah, it's good. a natural monopoly. Uh, I, I love that by the way. Um, it, had I not already raised my uh, two kids, I'd be dragging their ass to uh, Montana to, to be with you all. Uh, <laughs> but the, the idea of monopolizing public resources into uh, publicly run schools is is really dangerous. It's inherently dangerous. It's not something we would tolerate in any other business, right? In any other industry, but we tolerate it here. And 
And we normally talk about that, again, from the right side of libertarianism, which is to say it has implications for how badly these uh, schools are run. But coming at it as, as you do, as you did, from the, liber- from the left side of libertarianism, which is to say ethically people must live their lives by their own standards. This is critical. Parents need to be able to make choices about how their kids are educated because it's a major component of how their kids are raised. And a big piece of that is which school you're going to go to. Now, having said that, the other piece that's important is even if you're trapped in a public school or or you choose a public school, a lot of people uh, don't feel trapped by their public school. Parents need to be able to control in some sense uh, at the very least with guidelines, what it is that the kids are being taught in those schools. And I don't think it is up to us to say, you know, I live in community A, but you people in community B, here's how your education program, you know, ought to go. How you make those in, to get more granular, you know, we could talk about how those decisions ought to be made But as long as it's parents making them, I think it is up to us to be agnostic on those decisions, you know, which books, right? Mm -hmm. For example, I think that parents have got to get involved and make these decisions. And I think that, yeah, you're going to see mistakes made. We've already seen mistakes made in -hmm. both directions, right? We've seen, uh, for example, books uh, that flew under the radar and you crack them open and you're like, holy cow, I wouldn't right. want my 19 year old to see this. And, 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 and then of course you see books that are tossed out and you say, well, you know, um, right. you know maybe getting tossed out or something like that. Right. And there's, and there's like a cultural war that's happening there. That's why it's so interesting. Right. But it's over the it public resource. So you're saying we break and, up the public resource and allow for choice that that will solve that. And it, maybe it drives it into the civil society. And those those fights are happening on the level of where do I spend my education savings account? But you still have the question of, you know, when if we're going to what about public libraries? What about when, uh, you know, someone in a community says I'm in Billings, Montana, and this private organization is going to allow children into the strip club and I'm going to be OK and I'm not going to be OK with that. Is there a role for government then? And when, do, when does the protection of children come into it for your vision of libertarianism? I think that you've got to rely on parents to make uh, almost, we'll, we'll get to the almost, right. uh, we'll, we'll get to the not quite, uh, almost any decision regarding how to raise their kids. Uh, I would not remove, for example, anything from a, from a library on the off chance that a kid comes in there Look, it's it's up to parents to supervise what it is that kids uh, access in a in a public place. Mm. So I don't think that's an excuse uh, to make some you know weird rules about what a library uh, should carry. Having said that, there are certain things that we won't let parents do that we won't let kids do. You know, we as a society, we all believe, as I do, in an age of consent for sexuality. As an example, right, you can all fight about, you know, what number that is. But, you know, as a society, we believe and for good reason uh, in in an age of consent, that concept 
uh, I believe, has to apply uh, to other areas as well. Uh, if you're going to have any kind of medical procedure that is not uh, indicated by a medical condition, you need to, and it's going to have long-term, it's going to have permanent implications, there has to be an age of consent reached because the patient needs to be able to participate in the analysis, has to participate in understanding what it is, what the implications are, what the alternatives might be. Uh, and, and that is uh, the essence of requiring an age of consent. So I think that that concept applies in a number of areas. We don't, uh, we don't allow parents uh, to be violent with their children, as, an, as another example. Um, you know, we, we have to figure out how to draw the line there. Mm. But as a matter of principle, we don't allow violence, just as another example. So it sounds like to me, you know, your, your, your policy is that by and large, the, the decisions around culture should be a ground up grassroots decision made in a community, made by a family. And, and generally speaking, the federal government should not legislate morality in most cases. Does that sound about right? Uh, absolutely. The federal government should never be involved. Beautiful. And I'm arguing that state government should almost never be involved. Mm -hmm. And well, local government should almost never be involved. But uh, parental control is the key and uh, only in a group setting. If it's not a group setting, then the family has to be in control. Absolutely. Well, Mike, uh, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. There's obviously a lot more that we could cover, and we would love to have you back on sometime to uh, continue the conversation with us. I would love that as well. You guys have a good program, and I really appreciate you including me today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Take care, you guys. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com slash human reaction pod. And remember, obviously we would back up Montana no matter what. It is the crown jewel and the, the states that make up uh, the American nation and continent. Well, and we have all the nukes, so you got to protect the nukes, right? <laughs>